coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. So today's show audience, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges when you have your children. Going back to AG and going back to elementary school all the way to high school, I did have someone who was pushing me who didn't allow me in middle school. My dad didn't allow me to go to that other class. A lot of times the stereotypes or the biases or the prejudices that black men are not good fathers, or black men are not in the household, or 60, 70, 80% single mom in black families. So Bill, as white folks, how do you how do you think about that, or do you think about that? Growing up in Parma, where I grew up, we were led to believe the black men were absentee fathers. So it's just amazing that everybody, a lot of people want to talk about what we're talking about, Bill, finding common ground. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times, when it comes to race, and it comes to culture, and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just come to you just saying thank you for your grace and mercy. God, you know, we don't have to tell you all of everything because you already know, but we just want to say thank you for how you are helping and guiding and leading as we continue to deal with families and all the intersections that happen on this thing called the circle of life. So we thank you. We praise you in Jesus precious name. We pray and believe. Amen. 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 Dear heavenly father, we just uh, lift up uh, Calvin and his dad, Odell and their families. Uh, We thank you for our families. Our families are precious. Uh, We are, we, we are meant to have families. We are meant to be together and to support each other. Lord, we ask for blessings on all families listening to this podcast and to uh, our immediate family. Keep them safe as they travel about in their different states. Amen. Amen. Bill, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, it's interesting. The day we have as our guest, my firstborn son, Calvin Odell, Cleveland III, and it's interesting when you are a father and then you know it's right after father's day you're a father and now you have your son on who's a father so that means i'm a grandfather it's just amazing so to think about it and to have him on the show as a grown man it's just it's just funny how life happens and it happens so fast though oh yeah it sure does you know i've got three children will jess and lisa k how many do you have i have two but i want to say three I have Calvin, and then I have Tecumzi, and I have Adrian. Adrian is my nephew, well, Beverly, my wife's nephew, who came to live with us, I think, when he was in the eighth grade. 
and he's been with us ever since. So I see Adrian not as my adopted son or my stepson as my son. So I have three sons. And my and three how, sons. You remember that show, right? My three sons. I do. I do. The 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 difference was they they were a different color. That's all. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I, my three sons were three white guys, and here I am, the good-looking black guy, the good-looking slim and trim black guy, Bill, the slim and trim black guy. Hey, you you just made me think of something. You know, my three sons, I don't remember ever seeing any blacks on this show. You know, it's interesting. What does that say? That's, that's very interesting. It's an observation <laughs> that I hadn't made until recently, so that's great. You know, uh, we were able to, this past weekend, uh, Fox from New York flew in, a uh, young lady by the name of Lauren Green. She flew in and wanted to do a program on Juneteenth. So we were able to get the good people at the International Civil Rights Center Museum to allow us to do the interview over there. And that thing, the interview hit yesterday. And Bill, I got emails from people as far as Canada talking about it. Um, then it showed again today at the local, you know, Fox 8 affiliate here in Greensboro or High Point and got calls about that, too. So I'm sitting here and people are like, hey, man, I saw you on TV. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? You know, because you don't be thinking about that kind of stuff. So it's just amazing that everybody, a lot of people want to talk about what we're talking about, Bill, finding common ground. And how do you handle it when People come to you and say, I heard you on the podcast or this kind of stuff. How do you handle that, Bill? Well, they, they usually don't come up and tell me. They go, I've heard Odell on the podcast. <laughs> were, you, were you there, Bill? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, listen, we are a team and we do this together, as you know. Yeah. Um, you know, Bill, you're a businessman. I'm a businessman. My son's a businessman. I remember when my son was very young, um, we wanted, I wanted to personally make sure that he understood business, he understood education. And, you know, his bedroom was almost like a miniature classroom. I had all the ABCs on the walls. I had different colors on the walls. I had the different type of coins and money on the wall. And we would play games all the time. And I would go and get the same material that the teachers would get from the teacher supply store because of my experiences going through elementary school and all the challenges, I wanted to make sure that my sons, Calvin in particular, because he was the first one, I said I experimented on him, that they didn't have any challenges going through school. So today's show audience, we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the challenges when you have your children. And a lot of what we do, Bill, is predicated on our experience in school, but also you know, Cal's thoughts on how it is to be a father now and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. So, Bill, what's your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I thought before we bring Calvin in, you made me think of something. Uh, you, you grew up without a dad. Who taught you parenting? You know what? I think my grandfather. My grandfather really stepped into my life, and he was the father in my life that I didn't have. And he taught me the whole thing about work ethics, responsibility, and all those things. And I just thank God for a grandfather and of course, my mother, many people can say a mother can't teach a male child how to be a man, but I think a single mom can uh, teach a male child certain aspects of how to be a man. And one of the things that I prayed for when I was small, I said, God, when I grew up and I become a man, I want to be the father to my children that I never had because I had some ideas of not what to do right, but I definitely had 
some very strong ideas on what not to do, which was done wrong. And a big part of it is being there. I think a big part of it is being there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, uh, growing up, my dad, because uh, we had eight kids uh, and he was a fireman. So firemen, they work 24 on and 48 off. So he was gone, uh, you know, quite often for the night and everything. It just we got used to it. Uh, it always felt lonely when he wasn't in the house, though. So that was kind of interesting. The uh, And with eight kids, you know, he didn't make a lot of money. So he had to work two jobs and that many had less time. But we always found time to do things as a family. We'd go canoeing. We'd go swimming. Uh, I remember sometimes he'd come home from work after working all day. We'd be in the backyard playing basketball. And he'd come and he'd play uh, horse with us or four corners. And we did that. But I, I was tell, talking to one of my brothers the other day. We were reminiscing about we called him Big Bill. I call him, we call him dad, but he's referred to by friends as Big Bill, which is interesting because uh, I always thought of him as a large man until I, I inherited his Boy Scout uniform. And now that fits just fine. So I don't know what that tells you. What he used to do with us when we played basketball, you know, four score, we'd be running and he had these big old boots on with steel toes. Wow. And he, he would step on our foot, not to hurt us, but to hold us so we wouldn't move. Wow. We couldn't go chase the ball or try and stop one of my brothers from a layup. And he would just put his foot on us. So you had to keep an eye on dad's feet. If he got anywhere near you and put his foot on you, you weren't moving. You were locked down. Well, you know, it's interesting, Bill. Calvin, we did basketball. Of course, you know, I played basketball in high school and college and everything. And Calvin grew up and now he's a huge Duke basketball fan. He is just a big time fan. And Calvin was a good basketball player also. So let's let's bring him in, Bill, and just ask Calvin. Calvin, you know, tell everybody what a great dad you had and all this good stuff. And just the father of the year, the father of the century award. Calvin, my firstborn son, welcome to Common Ground. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. And I did have a great, great dad. We have a really, really good relationship. Um, provided quite a bit of foundation there that I try to implement um, in my life now on a daily basis, especially having a son first. Um, you know, just try to repeat some of those lessons and things that I learned. Um, I was blessed enough to learn because I actually had someone sitting in that corner. Um, I was going to ask you a really question, a uh, really quick question, Mr. Bill. Where, where do you fall in the hierarchy of eight kids? Are you oldest, youngest? I see. Are you the oldest with the last name or first name, Bill? Yeah, you can call me Bill. And I'm the oldest. Uh, my dad's was Bill. My son's name is Will uh, or William also. So he's the third. So I'm the oldest. I told everybody I, I kind of set the example. So that tells you where we ended up. <laughs> <laughs> so when he wasn't there, I mean, you you kind of had to somewhat play uh, the the man of the house role. I guess oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, my four youngest brothers, <clears throat> I pretty much raised them as their father figure. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. When, like I, at the time I was 16, 17 dating and they were probably 10 or 11 mm -hmm. and younger. And so, you know, I, I we'd go I'd go pick up, you know, have a date and we'd go to the lake. Or we'd go to a movie, uh, and I'd always take my brothers. Mm, wow. <laughs> and I figured, I figured if a girl didn't enjoy my brothers, my family, then they probably weren't going to be a right girl for me. Good, uh, good, good, good. And well, they were, my brothers are slick. They, they've picked up right away to open up the door for the girl, to help <laughs> her, make sure she had water. You know, they were, they, they spoiled her, and uh, which I liked. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that, that all worked out for you and that master plan that you had going on here. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's interesting. But but yes, um, Dad, going back to you to your question, um, you know, or obviously we haven't really gotten into my siblings um or or how close I am with them, but we all have a really, really good relationship with my dad. My dad had an interesting task um of bringing my cousin aboard, and we all are men. So um, I know as a, and we'll talk a little bit more about this um, later in the interview. I know one of the things that I'm going through now is raising uh, for the first time a, a woman in this Cleveland clan, if you will. Um, I believe, you know, my father has a sister, so it's not like it's foreign. And But my mother was the only um, female growing up. I, we really didn't have a female around the house. Um, I had a cousin who came and stayed with us from summer to summer when we were young kids. Um, but just having a little girl and her being the youngest um, out of my two, um, she's kind of like the princess of the immediate family, if you will. Um, my two brothers, Adrian and T, don't have kids yet. So it's just these two little ones that I have. Um, and Legend is more so just like me with personality wise. So um, I'm a lot like my dad. I'm a lot like my mother and my dad. I'm a, I'm a really good uh, split. But my say my son is a lot like me more so than my wife. Um, so I try to make sure to keep that in mind and be patient and to uh, be extra loving with him. Just like things that work for me or worked for me, I should say, in past tense, I try to make sure that I um, implement those same things of raising him. But my daughter is the wild card because, you know, um, I have not, um, I don't, I don't hit her. I, I really don't even raise my voice at her. Uh, the other day, I'm just now starting to actually raise my voice at her because it's uh, and not, not saying that's right or wrong, but, um, we're just hitting the point where she'll say no to me and she'll mean it. And um, I, my wife will look at me like, what are you going to do? And I'm kind of in a situation. And um, at first it was very, very uncomfortable, but I'm just now starting to say, hey, you can't talk to daddy like that. And she's looking at me shocked. I mean, um, we had an incident this weekend because I raised my voice to her and told her that she needed to go sit down. And she literally just fell apart onto the ground and tried to climb under the couch because she was just all just having a, a heart attack here because I raised my voice at her. So um, she understands that, that she has me wrapped around. It's very interesting, that dynamic. Um, but it's all about, uh, you know, learning how to be a father. And I, I actually, to your point, I actually had a, a role model to do that, um, which is, again, I'm, I'm blessed. So. That's my intro, Dad, as far as um, the father and what it feels like me being a father now. So, Bill, when you think about black men, a lot of times the stereotypes or the biases or the prejudices that black men are not good fathers or black men are not in the household or 60, 70, 80 percent single mom in black families. So, Bill, as white folks, how do you how do you think about that or do you think about that? You know, um, growing up in Parma, where I grew up, uh, we, we, we were led to believe uh, and uh, that uh, black men were absentee fathers, that uh, there was a mommy, daddy someplace or daddy, mommy. I'm not sure the right term. And uh, and uh, baby daddy. Is that what you're trying to say, Bill? Baby daddy. That's it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Help me out, brother. Help me out. <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, the uh, so we kind of were led to believe that, um, but as I got to meet more and more uh, people uh, that were black that had families, uh, like and with you know the dad was part of the family and went to work every day and you know was a was a father figure. And as I saw that more and more, I realized that uh, 
there must have been some reason that they that you had the distinction of blacks that didn't have fathers and then ones that had a normal family. And as you started digging into it, a lot of it came out of some of the social economic things of redlining <clears throat> that were done that would force people to live in certain areas and, uh, and not have education, not have the, I don't call it, uh, I call it white advantage, then that, that is, which was gave them an opportunity to uh, better themselves. Uh, even to just get a loan for a house, you know, was difficult. So all of a sudden those things, as I, as I started digging in, you know, but it wasn't until later on in life that all that stuff started uh, developing, you know, um, I was busy about raising my family and making a living. Well, you know, it's interesting when you look at it, Calvin would come home from school and we would play, um, numbers. We would count and, you know, he would count up to 25 and then we would, all his primary colors, then his secondary colors, and all this kind of stuff. And people are like, Odell, why are you so paranoid about your son learning and everything? Because Calvin was always smart. Calvin was that kid that was very smart, very talkative. And I, you know, everyone knows my battles that I went through, people trying to put me in special ed in the third grade. And I failed the third grade and the fourth grade and all that kind of good stuff, not because I was not intelligent. Is because it's a system out there that at the time in the late 60s, early 70s, it was convenient for them to put a young African-American child in that perspective. Now, I so I went in guns a blazing looking when it was time for my kids to go to school and Calvin would be very talkative. And I we had a young lady who was in charge of a daycare. Her name was Juliet Jackson. At uh, Bennett College for Women, they have this daycare called the Children's House. And she was excellent. I remember her telling me, Calvin is very intelligent. However, Calvin likes to talk. Do not allow the school system, when he goes in the school system, to take Calvin away from Calvin. And I asked her, what does she mean? Meaning that they're going to want him to sit down quietly, uh, hold his pencil a certain way, just like everybody else. And if you're not careful when you have an energetic child, People would try to put him or her on Ritalin or some form of medication. And I remember those battles when I went into the public school system and Calvin didn't always sit down when they wanted him to sit down or Calvin wouldn't always come back from recess when they wanted him to come from recess and Calvin didn't always stop talking when they wanted him to stop talking. But he always tested well, Bill. And they went on there to put him in advanced classes. And I remember having a discussion with him where none of his friends, a lot of his black friends were not in these advanced classes. These advanced classes are AG classes at the time, academically gifted classes, Mm -hmm. where the majority white kids in there and white teachers. And Calvin didn't want to go in there, but he went in and um, daddy had to get involved and everything else. And he did well. So a lot of times, Calvin, how did it feel going in there? Because I guess we were pushing you and you were a child, but how does that feel if you remember any of that, son? I do remember that. Um, I remember two different phases. Um, the part that you're referring to as far as um, a little bit of rebellion not wa- or fulfilling a little misfit or not wanting to be um, in AG, almost to be with my friends, was when I was in seventh grade, getting ready to go to eighth grade. Um, that was when I really started uh, 
like in, it was the whole middle school life. You're, you're kind of separated into teams, meaning the kids who you're in class with, you're going to pretty much be in class with them all day. So if you aren't in class with your friends, um, the way the block schedule has worked out, you might not see them again until practice or something like that. Um, you wouldn't sit with them at lunch. You know, you would pretty much be with this accelerated group um, the whole time. And it was great. I mean, I, I had friends who were in the accelerated group as well, um, but I just made a lot of really good friends who weren't in the accelerated group that I wanted to be in class with. Um, but he first had, that that's it had turned to advanced learner, I believe, AL by that time. But what you're talking about with AG, um, what I remember in elementary school was I, I honestly remember, and this this is kind of a weird way to think about it, but I remember being um, just kind of just good enough to be in there, uh, and not 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 because of how I felt about myself. Um, I remember being a very good math student and a very uh, some would even say weak English student. I remember taking the test in first grade, trying to get into advanced learning. And um, being really excited to take the test because you're invited and you're sent, your parents are sent a letter and they're saying, hey, we we think we've identified this child as um, an advanced learner, et cetera, et cetera. You go in and take the test. And I remember taking that test like I, I don't <laughs> I remember doing really well in the math part, but I remember the English part was way over my head. I mean, way over my head. And um, we got those results back. And I remember not going to the accelerated class at the end of the first grade. So I felt like I had failed almost like um, I remember just like feeling like, man, I, I didn't get in almost. And I had to go back to my regular classroom. And the second time um, when I was in second grade, I got retested. And I remember barely doing really well on the math and then struggling again on the English and thinking, man, is this going to be too much for me? But I, I did get in um, and that it got to a point where I went through all levels of that. I, it got to a point where I was really happy in second grade to get into advance and to be um, learning different things that my other classmates weren't learning. Um, but as soon as third and fourth grade rolled around and I wasn't, I was still, I was almost an advanced math person, but just average English. Um, I used to, I remember thinking like, oh, this isn't really what I want to do, you know, because I'm in class really struggling as far as the English side of things. Um, I even actually, I, I think, not think, I know, I don't know if it was me that requested it or if the teacher requested it, but I started going, I started becoming a half AG student. Um, Dad, I don't know if you remember that. I would go for the math class, but when the English class rolled around, I would go back to my regular classroom. And I remember thinking that too, because I remember thinking like the, the students would, they are, they know you're smart because you're going to this other class, but then you're right back in their class and they're kind of like, you know, what are you doing? Everybody else who's in that smart class is still there. And it's kind of like, you're kind of smart. So I remember all these different emotions um, going on and you're, these are all before you're 10. So, you know, you're kind of going through your head, like, what do you want? You're battling yourself. Like, do I want to be better? Do I want to be in these accelerated programs? Uh, you're hearing all these things because they throw college at you and all those words at you, even in elementary and middle school. Um, and like, this is the right path to go on. Um, Dad, even from the even from the the wording, because um, when you get to high school, the advanced learner class goes to advanced placement AP. So if you listen into those words, it's very subtle, but they're saying advanced placement. If you're in these classes, you're going to get placed in a better place. They don't say college. They don't say you have to go to these classes to go to college, but they saying, hey, this is advanced placement. You pass this class, you're going to be getting placed further than the regular class. And then the other classes below AP, they call honors because they don't want to make 
make it seem um, they want you to feel like, hey, you're, you're an honor roll student or you're your honors. You're you, you, you in your head naturally say, you know, I'm smarter. I'm taking an honors course. Then the other one is called CP, I believe. If I remember right, I might just be making back up. This is 10, 15 years ago. But college prep is what that stood for. And if you're in a CP class, it's like, you know, this is the regular class. This is the nothing wrong with it, right? They they try to put college in the in the breakdown of college prep, but the truth be told was I remember this, the 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 stigma of teachers treating you different, not different, like not in a bad way, but almost like these kids. One out of you know two out of these ten kids are going to go to college in these CP classes, but everybody in this AP class is going to go to school. So they would just teach at different levels. You would have different patient levels because the class would probably be causing you more issues on the CP side of things. In my advanced placement classes, that it wasn't much issues. I mean, people were there to learn. Um, they go home. They had family environments to support that learning, and lots of times they have family environments to push that learning. But in a college prep class, you might have the exact opposite. You might not have both parents in the household. You might have both parents in the household, but it's just some absence there. Or you just might have a student who's just struggling, who's in these classes, who could be in honors classes and advanced placement classes, but no one's pushing them to. So um, going back to AG and going back to elementary school all the way to high school, I did have someone who was pushing me, who didn't allow me in middle school. My dad didn't allow me to go to that other class. Um, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I intentionally started doing bad on some tests in middle school. Um, like I was going to make this plan, whether they were okay with it or not, I was going to force this. And, um, it just continued to backfire because the teacher would call and say, I remember the teacher called and said, you know, Calvin made a 90 in this math, all these other math tests. And now he just made a 50. I'm going to make him retest and take the test. I don't think he tried, you know? And, um, I remember my dad just having conversations with me and just like convinced or not convincing me, but just telling me it wasn't a bad thing to me in these classes. And, and um, when I get to college, it was going to be more people that look like me, um, you know, that, that are on the considered smart or considered a, a, an advanced learner, et cetera. And that's kind of exactly what happened. Um, no, I did a lot of talking on that question, Dad, but hopefully try yeah, to bring but, that. But it's great because, Calvin, I think uh, my grandchildren, your children, and you paying for it, uh, started a new prep school a day. So yeah. both of them yeah. going together. So you are putting your children in even more not private school, but private schools than I ever did with you all. So what drives you to make that decision that you're taking your precious daughter that you love mm -hmm. and your son legend, who's just like you, but smarter than you as a child, you could look at him and tell he's smarter than you were and definitely mm -hmm. smarter than me. Mm -hmm. And why did y'all make a decision to put them in very, very prep schools? Good question, Dad. So, you know, when you get married, um, it's, of course, you have to take into account someone else's opinion. Lots of times you got to take that into account more than your own uh, with them being a wife. So uh, my wife grew up and um, all like she went to private school. Her mother was huge on education. Um, it was just her and her mother um, and her father for a while. Her little sister is almost nine, 10 years younger than her. Meaning, so my when my parents were juggling, me and my brother being two years apart and, you know, you're having to put that a whole lot of emphasis on both kids as far as the precious learning years. My wife was different. She was just a solo. Her mom was putting 100% energy and effort into, into her. Um, so she was in private schools in the best schools up in Massachusetts. 
um, all the way up to high school. She went to private school from elementary to high school um, and was just on an advanced route. So when she got here, she moved to High Point, um, which is actually uh, about 30 minutes from where I'm from in Greensboro. Um, she moved to High Point when she was in 15 or in the 10th grade. And it was a culture shock because of the, you know, the public High Point Central school system versus where she came from. And she, as I mean, her whole thing now with our kids is that she just, I, you know, we, 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 this would be a conversation for us to have later, but she really just wants them. The schooling is really, really important. She wants them to be in the best um, opportunity and have the best chances. She does not necessarily uh, love public school. I, I think public school is very important. I often tell her about some of the public camps my father put us in and uh, the public school was a really, really big um, emphasis. Our summer camps, really big emphasis. We were in camps. Um, I remember Center for Champions is one of them where, you know, it's it's the atmosphere and the environment was a really, really tough environment because it's a lot of kids who come from poor backgrounds. And um, he just wanted us to have the exposure um, and we would be there all summer. You'd be eating, you know, the government food just like they, they were eating um, and you would not feel like you were a kid. You didn't feel like you were better than anyone or anything like that. You were just like exposed to it and it was good exposure because um, that exposure helps me out as an adult now I, I can put myself in situations and relate to people that um, a lot of other people might not be able to relate to but going back to my my children uh, my wife really really pushes education and wants them to be um, in the best education I don't believe that the most expensive school always gets you the best education but in this case in this daycare when we walked it a few weeks ago um, it's just 10 times. I mean, it's, it's, they have computer day, they have music day, they have yoga day, they have, um, like, you know, all kinds of, uh, different activities and, uh, sport things and stuff going on. Um, at such an early young age and you just see, man, these kids are getting an advantage uh, they're, they're exposure dad that is getting exposed to so many different things. Yoga, like what, you know, I didn't know what yoga was. Um, when I was three years old, legend they won't know what yoga is right now, but he'll come home one of these days and he'll probably be doing stretches and saying, dad, I learned yoga. You know, I just think that's, that's really cool. Um, as far as my daughter's concerned, um, you know, she, she really is, she was actually ready for us to go this morning, dad. We were like, you know, giving hugs and legend was a little, um, you know, didn't want us to go out a little, not teary eyed, but a little emotional. My wife, my daughter told us goodbye and to get out pretty much and, um, really jumped into it. So it's another thing too. It was good seeing teachers and you know, they were like, oh, go ahead, you know, go ahead, mom and dad, we got her. And um, just seeing, you know, I, at, at these different levels of daycare, even at this early age, you see the level of, of attentiveness that your kids are getting. Um, what I saw this morning was just a different level than I've seen previous. So it makes you feel really good as a parent because it is taking a little bit of extra time with your child, especially in this COVID environment. This is completely different than when we were raised. Um, you're just seeing uh, there's such a lack of in daycare systems. There's such a short temper. There's such a high turnover rate. Um, they're not paid as much. Um, and it's a this became kind of a, um, a is daycare open today situation. And that wasn't the, the case. You always knew my daycare was going to be open that um, you could have a COVID outbreak and is daycare open. Um, you could have these these teachers are younger. They're not as experienced. Um, not saying that they're not as good, but it's just a, this COVID has just tired a lot of people out. Um, so we've just really went through those challenges. And, and now, you know, like when you get at a really good school, you feel great as a parent to be able to put your kids in that situation and to be able to see that this is a much better situation for them. Um, yeah. Well, Bill, let's let's you know, this is the Odell and Bill show and Odell and Calvin are sitting there talking like Bill is not there. 
But one thing, Cal, just want to let you know that, and I tell you this quite often, I'm so proud of you and I love you and I'm so proud of the man that you have become. And when you think about the pressures of being a man and also the pressures of business, you know, you do a lot in business. So I'm going to throw the ball to Bill and let Bill. Bill is a business uh, man who does well. And Bill is on you, sir. Well, you know, as listening to Calvin being put in, I guess, Odell, you put Calvin in daycare when he was growing up as well? Yes. Yes. We went through a lot of different schools. We shopped and studied and did our research. And we thought that the Children's House at Bennett College was the best. It was between that and A&T State University had a children's lab kind of daycare. And we decided to go at Bennett instead of A&T. And I think it was a great decision for us. And both our boys went through the Children's House at Bennett College. Well, you know, I think daycare does serve a purpose in that it exposes kids, as Calvin was saying, to all those things that uh, they may not be exposed if they stayed home. You know, I, I was reflecting as he was talking about we didn't have daycare when I was growing up with eight kids. There's no way we could afford it. Mm-hmm. Uh, our daycare was go outside and play. <laughs> and don't come back to the American flag is put up. That's when dinner's ready. Mm-hmm. And wow. then when you came back down, you had to go down to the basement and take off your clothes because they were full of dirt and mud and sand and, and, you know, come upstairs, take a shower and go eat. And uh, so that was our daycare. Looking back, you know, I struggled in, in high school and I struggled in grade school. In college, I started doing much better. Uh, but part of it was I'd never been exposed to a lot of things, as you were talking about, um, until later, later on, much later in life. And uh, and I probably wouldn't have gotten it in the college, high school I went to as a college prep. So everybody was going to college. We never, if you wanted to go to trade school, if you wanted, you'd go to the public school and take some classes and shop and all that stuff, which doesn't exist today. But uh, that was an interesting backstory on, on it. And kids are being brought up different with parents that are, you know, you, you, we used to think, I remember people saying, hey, we're putting my kids in day school, uh, daycare. And I'm thinking, you don't want to stay home and raise them? <laughs> that, that's and the answer is uh, we're not all equipped to do those things. We don't have the skill set. You're assuming that my wife has those skill sets to teach them all those subjects. There are some wives that do, but I don't think it's just like. Does every wife cook? Does every husband cook? No. Does every husband clean a house? No. You know, it just, we all have different skill sets. So it's smart to put a child in where they're exposed to a lot of different things when their brain is developing. And uh, I think that's, it's, it's a cultural shift because years ago, mom stayed home and raised the kids. That's the way it was. Well, now the mom's got to work to help pay the bills. And so what do you do with the kids during the day? We put them in the best place you can, a daycare. Okay. Now, Calvin, they go all day or they just go half a day or how's it work? Um, yeah, they're going all day. So we, uh, the, the new daycare actually opens up at seven and closes at six 30 or six o'clock. So, um, we, that's going to be a, a blessing because we, for the last year and a half have been dealing with the situation where we, uh, couldn't have the kids there till eight. One of the daycares opened up at eight thirty and closed at four, so it created a really, really hard dynamic when um, something's closing at four o'clock 
and you have to get off of work. If you're going into work downtown or anything like that, it's going to take 45 minutes for you to get to the daycare. So you're leaving work at 315, which is not feasible, you know, when you're supposed to be getting off at five. So um, it's been a lot of, uh, of headaches and things with the daycare, but this new daycare, I mean, and they also were going to two different daycares until this morning. So hmm. now them, them to be dropped off for us to even get a picture, Bill, um, we got a picture and, you know, cause of course you didn't have daycare back in the day, but now they have it with the new apps. You get pictures, you see what they're eating. Yeah. All those things. Um, it was actually a really cool picture because the kids were out playing or a little afternoon. Um, and our, I guess my daughter's classroom's playground is connected, but it has a gate in the middle. Um, and it's like her playground's here and my son's playground's here and it's a gate in the middle, but they can see each other. And uh, she, they found each other today on the first day. So they kind of were like playing with each other through the gate. And my son was, my daughter was just sitting there like like with a little toy in her hand. My son was on this big bicycle <laughs> that was bigger than him. And I was just laughing because I was like, he's getting very comfortable and is running to the biggest toy and he's off. So um, he seems like both of them are, are, are getting well acclimated. But um, yeah, our daycare is a full uh, full day and that right now with the businesses and different things I do on the side um, we pretty much have to have that um, you know because it's when they're home I have to put them in the car um, like I'm a real estate agent and with real estate anything can happen at any time you never really have a schedule yeah um, I have a client calling you now or um, if some of the other business ventures I do um, I have contractors that I deal with on a regular basis that just call me at random times and um, that you have to just drop everything. As soon as this podcast ends, I'm going to actually be going out to Gastonia today to be dropping some things off to a contract that he has to put on tonight. Um, but the, with that kind of schedule, um, it's really, really, really important that we actually feel comfortable and have a place that's consistent. Um, and now that we don't have to get them at four o'clock, Bill, it's going to change my life. Um, that gives me another hour and a half of business productivity that I get to do before I have to head out of this house. So um, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, you know, I went down to a, a, a Toyota plant in uh, Georgetown, Kentucky. They make the Camrys and they make uh, the Lexus cars and the Avalons. <clears throat> and the reason I went down is they, they, you know, they had this, I think they have 6,000 employees and, uh, so I went down, they, they give a tour of it uh, and they talk about their lean business practices. So I was studying lean and I was curious to see it firsthand. And, but one of the questions I asked them, uh, they had a question and answer. I said, what's your turnover rate with 6,000 people? And they said, oh, if we get the 0.9%, 0.9%, less than 1%, we get worried. Mm. And, and I said, well, why, why do you have such low turnover? And they said, because... We have a full service daycare center. Mm -hmm. We have a full service senior care center. You can bring your parents in. We have our own uh, hospital, doctors, nurses. You can get medication. You can get things taken care of. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, they, they basically, when you get there, the things that require us to sit tight, the things that, uh, you know, require, you know, you to, for work, they take away, like they have a uh, place you can get your car washed, get your car repaired, uh, get your laundry done. I mean, it's just, so when you get there, it's, you become family, they take care of you and you just focus on your job mm -hmm. and they take care of all the other stuff. You know, and you think about that, Odell, us growing up, we never had anything like that. Mm -hmm. And to think about it today, that's a real reason not to leave a company. <laughs> well, definitely. And, Calvin, what do you do for a living? Uh, I know you have some big old fancy title with the bank and then you do a bunch of other stuff. 
Can you explain to our listening audience? Because, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, we are in all states in the union. And how many countries are we in now? 31. We're in 31 different countries. So, Calvin, can you explain to the listening audience, um, your mean old daddy made you do AG and actively gifted classes and all that good stuff. And you went and graduated college in three years and got your MBA in another year and a half or something like that. And so now what are you doing with all that education your daddy kept pushing? Um, well, uh, my last semester, uh, or excuse me, my third semester of grad school, dad, um, when I was getting my MBA, I got my MBA in two years, but, um, when I got my MBA, uh, I started at Bank of America uh, in 2010, um, as I was getting ready to, I know I was in the middle of my fall semester, the third out of four semesters before graduating with my master's. Um, and I've been there for since 2010, going on to 12 years now this October. Um, so I've bounced around, but currently um, I'm working in the risk um, GMFR space. Um, I'm an assistant vice president. And I just work with um, making sure that we have correct agreements lined up with different businesses um, that we're trading with, or if businesses are trading and they're using Bank of America as an entity um, in the middle of the trade, we have to make sure we have agreements in place, um, you know, that, that uh, permit that trading, if you will. That's a really simplified version of what I do every day at the bank. Um, but I, you know, my, my dad knows this. I am a, I'm on racist uh, bill. I'm a business guy first. Um, I do a lot with real estate. I got into real estate in 2011 just by buying a house. Um, was working at the bank and needed somewhere to live. So um, didn't want to go back home and chose to buy a house. And that kind of sparked me into real estate. I've always been kind of crafty and uh, hands-on. Um, I remember like loving the Boy Scouts when I was in. I really excelled at Boy Scouts when I was a kid because it was like a lot of hands-on things. You kind of could go at your own pace. And um, I do really well with that. If you kind of tell me, um, if I don't have to, I, I do well with teams, but if I kind of just get a benchmarks put in front of me or checkpoints and um, you just don't really kind of tell me how I have to do it and then it just needs to be done, um, I can kind of uh, excel in my own little world, just kind of like working in my own space. But uh, what that real estate stuff turned into um, was just a me living in a home and me house hacking. Um, so just had roommates living with me who were in college with me, some of my fraternity brothers. Um, that led to me actually selling that first property and going out and buying a rental property um, in 2014. I think I was like 24 or 25 and then could becoming a landlord, you know, and I was really interested in that. And um, I was really interested into after their person rented out my property, they did a little bit of damage, nothing too bad, but I got really interested into fixing it up um, or into having to fix it up, like, you know, what that cost and kind of seeing like the process, if you will. And that led into what I do now, which is flipping homes. Um, so I got into that in 2018, the year my son was born, I became a full-time flipper as well. And um, that is calls on a lot of the things that I do really well. Um, I'm a business person like my dad. Um, my mother's the organized person, if you will. And uh, with flips, it kind of takes both of those worlds and combines them. Um, you get to negotiate. So my dad deals with negotiating and networking all the time. Um, I get to negotiate with different people. I get to be a people person as a realtor and work with different clients. I get to help out. That's kind of my serving. I feel like God has put me on the earth to serve um, in that capacity. So I get to do that and help people, you know, make generational wealth for themselves, especially people, young people who look like me, who just did not have the knowledge in front of them. Um, being able to kind of implement that knowledge and pass it on really, really uh, does my heart good, if you will. And then flipping kind of puts me back into my 
Boy Scouts, me being kind of handy and um, also getting to manage as well, which is what I went to school for with my MBA. I'm just managing different personality types because contractors are definitely not like W-2 employees. Um, contractors come with a whole host of different uh, stories and guidelines and they used used to working for themselves and, and how they do it. And there's a lot of different um, personalities you might have to manage while three or four different people are working on in your home. Um, and you never really think about it until you think about it. I'm, I'm the person in the background that kind of starts it. I make sure everybody gets paid. I run around Lowe's and Home Depot, pretty much live there, going to buy things and um, walk in and see these houses that are 100 years old and really, really ugly and have to see vision. You get about 30, 40 minutes to make a decision in this kind of a market. And you just have to move forward, dad, and move on faith. So it's a lot of praying and a lot of uh, confidence. You got to be really confident in what you're doing, confident in those numbers, um, the quick math. Um, to see that you can make sure you can turn your profit. And then you got to have an eye too to make sure that you're not missing anything. Um, you know, I've ran into all kinds of things that are behind walls or um, in crawl spaces, et cetera, that are big time money items that um, you kind of learn from. But um, Bill, I've been doing that for about three or four years now, multitasking with it. And it kind of is going into slow motion at this point. Um, I've gotten pretty used to it. And um, now I even take my son out to some of these projects. He's getting old enough now um, to where I'm taking him out and just letting him see uh, these different houses. He actually loves it. Um, so talking about exposure, um, I wasn't necessary. We didn't, I did a lot. My dad put me on a lot of different business things when I was younger. Um, we used to have stores a lot that I used to love. And uh, I'd have basketball cards, little uh, household items of candy and things that my parents would allow us to put in the playroom. And we would put prices on them and they would come in and say, okay, the store opens up at six o'clock. And we'd me and my brother would put all these things up on little makeshift shelves and all these things. And our parents would come in and buy things from us, like a dollar worth of stuff. And it just was cool because you're practicing typing on this fake register and you're counting change that you have in a little, um, we used to have them in a cigar little cigar box. It was that cigar box. The cigar box. Yeah, dad, we had them, we had our change in the cigar box and, um, you know, you kind of, you just get used to counting and, and getting a dollar and returning back 70 cents and just that whole thing. Like those are exactly what I'm doing now. It's just higher, different numbers. So my son says he wants to be a construction worker bill because he sees this. So every time we pass any kind of a crane or if any time um, anybody's working on a road or on a house, he thinks his dad is more talented than he really is, which is great because I do not do this work in the houses. All I do is demo, meaning I tear things apart. I cannot put them back together. Um, but my the son thinks I can do it all. So he says, Dad, I want to build houses just like you and be a construction worker. And that's just from exposure. Um, and hopefully, you know, he'll continue. So I'll continue to build that and he'll get that exposure. There's a lot of millionaires who are made, young millionaires who are made from real estate. And uh, their parents taught them about real estate and real estate was passed on, land was passed on, uh, triplex, triplex and duplexes were passed on in their in their um, um, family lineage. And it just creates like, you know, crazy opportunities for the next up coming up. So that's what I do, Dad, on a daily basis, uh, work a little bit at Bank of America and do a lot of real estate um, and just try to keep my head above water and, and make sure that I spend time with the kids. But it was really important that I found something that did not slow me or take me away from my children. So the things that I do now on the real estate side, um, a house, these houses are vacant. And I love it because I can go in there at 10 o'clock, Bill, and stay there till two in the morning and no one knows. I'm just in my little world by myself, music's playing and I'm just getting to it. And um, I don't miss any time though. My son's sleep, my kids are asleep. Um, my wife's getting ready to go to sleep and get ready for her next day. And I'm just kind of in my own little world. Um, and, I, and I love that. So it, I, I like being a loner at times. So it's just, 
it's just something that I can tap into and it kind of really works out with all the things I like in my life. Um, I'm a big believer in uh, doing what you what you want to do. Um, just like my dad said, I used to get in trouble for that. But now as an adult, um, continuing to to not uh, be somebody or be be myself, be my true version of myself and um, really, you know, go to the beat of my own drum because it's worked out, worked out for me. Bill, you know what? As Calvin thought about that, um, a couple of things I'm going to share. Calvin started so many different businesses in high school. One time he had one where he was uh, spray painting T-shirts for folks. And then he was doing this thing where we opened a bank account and he was ordering things. And that was his first bank account. But there's one thing Calvin did, and I want to get Calvin's opinion. I haven't thought about this in years. I did teach him, you know, the cigar box you know, was the cash register and they would go and get things and me and Bev would come in there like a store. We're the customers and all this kind of stuff. But also what I did too, Bill, on the coffee table in the living room, I would put him and Tecumseh on top of the coffee table and make them recite speeches, kind of like public speaking. I know this sounds so crazy, but I would put them on there and they would either have to read something or recite something, pledge allegiance or something and it got them. Calvin was so good at it. He comes, he would just laugh because it was so humorous to him. But the whole trading thing, I remember one day Calvin came home with a big score. He came in and said, Daddy, 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 I sold a Pokemon card to a little guy down the street for $100. And Bill, I'm like, no, sure. And Calvin showed me a $100 bill. And I remember getting Calvin and walking him down the street to the neighbor's house. And it was interesting because this neighbor was kind of um, good old boys at the time. He probably wasn't that friendly, but I remember going and knocking on his door and said, sir, um, my son um, sold your son a Pokemon card for $100. And I just wanted you to know about it. And I want to give you your $100 back and get the Pokemon card back. Calvin, do you remember that? Yes, I do. Mm hmm. How do you remember that story? Because you're like, Daddy, what are you doing? Um, yeah. Before you start, Calvin, before you start, Calvin, uh -huh. you know, the first time I met Odell, he tried to sell me that Pokemon card. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is not the first time um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell this story, too. It's going to be funny. But um, that was probably the second time where I felt like I lost out on um, a big amount of money. And I was like, dad, what are you doing? You know, um, cause at the time um, I was like nine or 10 when that happened and a hundred dollars, I had never had a hundred dollar bill before. So one, I just felt, yeah, I felt like I have a hundred dollar bill. I felt rich. Um, but um, it was, it was more to give the kid credit. It was more than a Pokemon card. It was a game he had got to. So it was, it was okay. a little bit of a, a negotiation we had worked out, but it definitely was not worth a hundred dollars. So I had, uh, I had definitely came out on top of that and felt, uh, felt, you know, like, man, I, I should have walked away is what, is what I, or not walked away. Cause I did walk away. I, I did well. My dad just came back and said, you did too well almost. But um, that made me laugh. Dad, that reminded me of us playing basketball um, um, the other time where I felt like money was taken from me, Bill, was I learned a really hard lesson when I was about nine or 10, me and my dad, um, I was nine because he had just got this basketball goal outside. And, uh, this was, <laughs> this was, he challenged me $250, um, to play basketball with him. And he said that he was going to, he gave me not, no, he gave me nine points going to 10 and, um, I got the ball first. So 
Um, I couldn't lose any money, and it was only for me to win. So I don't know what he was trying to do, but he anyway, I got the ball and got lucky and hit a shot. And so <laughs> before he knew it, Bill, before he knew it, I'm sorry, I was up about $250. And this is invisible money to me because I never saw it. Never saw it, never will. Um, and as soon as I hit that shot, my dad, I'm like, I remember celebrating and running in the garage and just running around. And he was like, you know, a double or nothing. You know, and um, he said, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the ball again uh, first. And um, he gave me some other dad. You know what? He, you didn't give me nine points the first time because that would have been too sweet. I think you gave me like eight points or seven points. So the next game, Bill, he gives me eight points instead of seven. He's like, all right, now you only got to score two. And I got lucky again and hit a shot. And so now I'm $500 up. My mom's not home. Um, my brother's not home. It's just me and my dad playing in the backyard. And I really thought I'm I'm rich, you know, and this is the lesson that I still think about to this day. Um, he that's when he coerced me. He told me that the double or nothing. He'll give me nine points going to 10 uh, my ball first. And he blocked my shot and proceeded to back down being a grown probably, I don't know, 40 years old, 35 years old. I'm nine and he's backing down. He's a bigger guy. And I could do absolutely nothing. And he went to score uh, 10 points in a row on me. And I ran in and cried and um, never saw the money. Uh, he never gave me a consolation prize. But I remember telling myself, like, you know, that, you know, you, you got to know when to quit. You got to know when to walk away. Like greed. I remember there's a very early learned lesson of greed. Um, so just as my dad took my $100 away, he also took $500 away from me that I never got. But these are all lessons that I, I, I remember both of these lessons now as an adult. So they both have played. I, I to this day, with stock markets or with real estate bill, sometimes when I'm in negotiations with a seller and a buyer, I, I think about that, man. I don't I don't try to win everything and try to like be uh, Warren Buffett said, don't try to always sell at the top or try to get out um, at the bottom. You know, you just got to kind of you're not going to be perfect. Right. You're not going to always hit it. And I think about that even as an adult now. I, I tell myself, OK, Cal, you know, you, you maybe can get 500 more dollars in this deal, but. This buyer's getting pretty upset. I, I want them to feel good. Let me just walk away. Let me let them feel like they're winning something. Um, and it's really worked out for me um, as an adult. But those are two simple lessons when I was like eight and nine that I remember like yesterday um, happening. So, yeah, I do remember that. Before. Good, le good lesson. Good lesson. But it tells me next time I play basketball how I'm going to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> walk away, please. Walk, walk away. I don't know if my dad would have gave me that money. I did tell my mother. I remember being so upset at him about it. I told my mom and we uh, we that's the last time we ever played basketball for money. Uh, so they must have had a conversation. <laughs> yeah, you're chewing me out, Bill. Bev chewed me out. Don't do that. Don't play him for money and everything. But Calvin was good and Calvin was cocky. And I, I liked him to have that edge. And the thing about it, Calvin, how many houses have you sold? And how many houses have you flipped when you sold for yourself so far? Because Bill, he he wins all these awards on selling and everything. And I told him when I retire, I moved down to Charlotte, I'm going to get me an old truck like Sanford and Son, and I'm going to work for him. And hopefully he doesn't fire me. <laughs> Dad, I, I don't know how much houses I sold um, as far as like as a realtor. Um, I know and I'm, I'm I try to be as humble as possible with those kind of things um, and try to be quiet. One 
Um, you know, one, I try to do that, Mr. Bill, because, you know, I don't want Bank of America all down my, down my back. So I try, I try not to run around and say how much money, oh, I'm selling all these houses and come use me. I do it very passively um, because it's crazy. A lot of, some of my clients are from Bank of America, the employees. Um, it, it really works well because it's like with them, they're the best employees. I, I know where they work. I don't have to ask is their numbers. I can easily, I, I can have, we can both walk down to the Bank of America downstairs and get a pre-approval letter. And I can walk them through that process on a lunch break. Um, I've done that quite a few times actually. Um, but dad, I, I'd say that last year I did 6.5 million in sales. So what that equated to in houses, um, if a house is $200,000 or something like that, that would be about five, about 30 houses. Um, some houses were 500,000, some houses were 150. So it's really kind of hard to say, but I did 6.5 in sales last year. Flips, uh, Bill, I've done 20 flips. I'm working on, 21, 22, 23, and as of yesterday, 24 now. So um, I'm actually going to, as soon as we get off here, I'm flying out and I'm going to go to flip 24 and flip 22 because me, we're trying to wrap 21 up and 22 up this week and next week and try to get them on the market. Um, And then we'll start putting some more full-fledged effort into the last two flips. But dad, yeah, so I've had 20 flips. I don't know how many homes I've sold, but those are two different entities for me. Um, I have the Cleveland Group LLC, which is my business that I have set up for the flips and the properties. And then um, I have Cleve Realty, which is a sole proprietorship um, that I have as a, as a real estate agent that I do on the side. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you're teaching a lot of young black professionals. You're down in Charlotte, uh, young black professionals with money, and you're teaching them how to build wealth. And you said in a lot of cases, they didn't know that you can build well. Now, Bill, how do we learn those lessons? Because Bill knew, Bill is a wealthy guy. So Cal, where did you get all this? Because one time, Bill, and Calvin threw this in my face once. I sent Calvin to school and I said, Calvin, go to school and learn. I said, this family knows how to work hard to make money, but I need you to go to school, son, and learn how money works. And when you learn how money works, then I need you to come back and show this family how money works. And I remember once he was coming to me and uh, he needed some money or wanted some money to purchase a, in the early days, purchase a house or purchase a flip. And I remember hesitating and Calvin, what did you say when I hesitated? You remember that conversation? Oh yeah. Talking to you and mom, um, just saying, you know, you told me to learn how money works. I've learned it, you know, like you gotta, you gotta be able to listen to who you told, you know, you got, you got to, I'm kind of being respectful now. I'm talking to my dad. Right. But I said, you got to kind of step back and listen to what, what you said. You, 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 you planted these seeds. You got to kind of step back and and allow them to, to come to fruition. Um, If you, you know, it's hard to, to stop being a parent too in moments. Um, it's a famous story. My mom, my mom, when I bought my first house, my mom was very actually upset about it. She didn't want me to buy my first property. She thought I was really young and it was doing the real estate. It just crashed. I bought in 2010 and, you know, in 09, everything was every article you could read said, do not buy real estate. And um, I just did my own thing. I go to the beat of my own drum, but I did research. Um, and so Bill, what I, what I make sure to do um, is to go over and beyond in the research. So if I ever, give my dad or get my mother involved. Um, they now invest with me, um, which is great. Like, I actually think that's like one of the coolest things out of all this is my dad's big thing is legacy. And um, we're doing legacy things now. We're both alive and well and kicking as he's not like, you know, on his deathbed or anything like that. He's still very active as a grandfather and all those things. And we're making money together. I mean, you know, it's that it's, it's cool. Like, you know, and it's, it's, it's saying, oh, you know, father, son, but it's different when you, you know, you said, no, dad, I'm gonna send you a check. Like, you're going to get some cash from this. You know, this is real money. And 
Um, they've done that a few times with me now. And my mom was like, man, I'm getting thousands of dollars from not doing nothing, you know? And I saw my mom, that's exactly what I told you to do, you know, two years ago, we could even had you even more money, but um, it all happened in due time. Um, but that's what I told my dad. It's like, Hey, just take a step back. I've, I'm deeper in this than you guys probably realize I am. I am um, Bill. My first house that I flipped, I, I had $6 in my account when I bought that house. So um, uh, I needed, $60,000. It was a condo. And um, I found 20,000 from a friend. Um, and he believed in me, which is a lot to believe in a kid. I was like 21, 22. And um, I took like my little $40,000. I had $40,006. And I remember getting that CD or the closing disclosure. And I remember just whatever I needed. I remember I had $6 left when it was said and done. I had to move on faith on that, but it worked out. Um, I remember dad, when we bought my first house, um, I got there before my dad, my dad and my mom, the house they didn't want me to get, they wanted to be at the closing. They wanted to make sure everything was going right. They wanted to make sure everything happened. It's like, they still didn't trust me. And we're signing documents. And I remember the attorney looked at me and was like, hey, I'm just waiting for your dad to get here. And I was like, you know, she didn't even know because we have the, of course, I'm the third, he's a junior. And she said, yeah, because you're not buying the house, are you? And I was like, yeah, I already gave you my license. And she was like, oh, well, we got to wait for your dad to get here because he's going to the loan. I said, he's not. Had to explain to them because I was young at the time. Like, my dad isn't buying this house. I'm buying this house, you know. And um, so just in general, I've, I've dealt with that in my real estate career. Just like this, this doubt, not bad doubt. Uh, my parents are just a more so worried doubt. Right. Not even doubt. It is worried. I don't even say doubt. I never get doubt on my parents. Just worry. But this is a lot of real estate world. Um, it's doubt, you know, and, and, and these things aren't going to happen, especially when you're doing flips because it's so much risk involved. But um, um, now it's really good to see on the other side where people believe in you. And now I get phone calls of people wanting to invest. And I'm actually like, oh, I'm OK. But my parents, you know, when they they invest or so when I take my father in law's money and invest in and things like that, it really feels good because. Um, I feel like we're all eating together. We're all growing together. Um, it's really a legacy being built. It's really, I, I put a lot of onus on that um, and a lot of uh, pride behind it to make sure that um, I'm building a legacy like my dad wants me to. What a great story. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're getting near the end of our show. Uh, Calvin, we always ask our guest, how do you find common ground? Uh, common ground. Well, I, I heard, uh, I heard Ish's response when you guys had him on a, a week or two ago. Um, I would say that common ground, you, you find it by doing things like this, by one exposure and by just hitting things head on. So, um, I, I have heard of two of the different podcasts that you guys have done and, um, just not running away from issues or running away from subjects. Um, it takes, I, I kind of watch my words, Dad, with this, but I don't know another way to say it. But I think it kind of takes some balls to, to kind of really come in and just say, hey, OK, I'm going to take someone from a whole different background. And we're going to talk about things that people just generally wouldn't talk about, um, especially behind, unless they're behind closed doors and talk about it on a public uh, setting, because that could lead to so many different things, uh, so many different positive things. But you got to have the right people, uh, because if you have the wrong people, right, it could be so many negative things on such a grand scheme of things or a grand scale, I should say that. But um, um, common ground to me um, in my life uh, or would be, I guess, implementing and, and expo would be led with exposure and would ultimately um, because I. I don't, I don't even know how to say this. I'm kind of starting over as I say it because it's kind of uncomfortable for me to say. Um, in the real estate realm that I work in, there's not much common ground. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is common ground to me 
um, is, is waking up and doing what I'm doing every day and continuing to educate people who look like me and being exposed to things of people who don't look like me. Because to be honest, I've learned one of my biggest real estate lessons from a kid who's from Greensboro. His name is Mike. Mike, if you listen to this, you ever do shout out to him. He is this white kid. He's two years younger than me. We've actually become really, really good friends. We took real estate school together. And he put me on line of credits, which is one of the biggest lessons that I ever learned in real estate. And it just came, that came, Bill, from me and him going for coffee. I don't even drink coffee. And we sat there and we just went talking. He was like, man, you know what? I'm telling him about my six, having $6 in my account. This is a real story, having $6 in my account. He's like, you know, you should... Calp, you, but you bought it cash and it's worth more. It's worth, it's not worth 60,000, it's worth 90. And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, why don't you pull the money out? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, a lot of credit. You don't know what that is. And he, that, that lesson there has changed the last six years of my life. I mean, so common ground is me being comfortable with sitting down with him, me being okay with him having that knowledge from wherever he got it from, whether it be from his job, whether it be from his parents, whether it be from his, you know, just his, just his being or his experiences and me taking that knowledge and then taking it back to my community um, and passing it along. And not just people who look just like me, I, I pass that along to a little bit of everyone, but um, it's, it's, it's my duty and job to make sure that that gets passed on. So finding common ground and practicing it is to me, um, coming together and pushing things forward at all times, um, no matter color, no matter race, no matter religion, just finding it in the melting pot, handling it head on and um, just figuring out the best way to handle it. So I know that's a little long answer. I've been doing a lot of talking on this whole interview, but um, I'm glad I kind of get caught in my thoughts and just want to make sure I get it all out. No, 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 it's okay. It's good answer. Good answer. Odell, what say you? Give you the last word, buddy. You know, I just sitting here as a father, just, proud of my son. I'm just proud to the point of tears, just proud of my son because you never know, Bill, as a parent, you never know. And he's right. We were very concerned and scared when a 20 something year old said, Hey, I'm getting ready to buy a house. And 2008, it happened. Uh, the crash, 2009, 2010. And we like, Calvin, no, no, don't do that. And he said, yep, I'm gonna do it. And he did it. And it's been a lot of situations like that. And Calvin's respectful. He listens. Then he goes and do what he wants to do. So, you know, it works that way. And, Bill, we're going, we're going to Paris, baby, and London on Calvin. We're going to Paris and London on Calvin, investing our money with Calvin. We're going to Paris and London. And who knows? Maybe Mama buy a uh, Louis Vuitton bag from one of the big Louis stores over there on her return on investment from Mr. Calvin Odell Cleveland III my firstborn son who I love and I'm proud of it. Proud of you, Calvin. I love you, son. And just thank you for being just a great father, being a great son. And I hope and pray one day you will be a grandfather because there's nothing like it. It's nothing like it, my friend. Bill? Well, you're right. You're right. And I'm so happy that Calvin gave you the money to go to uh, Paris and London. Uh, Calvin, uh, we, we, you and I probably need to talk. <laughs> well bill that money ain't came yet i got his money in it's still in my account it's supposed to be coming in august and now that i remember that basketball story i don't know that might go <laughs> i don't know if he's gonna get it I, even at I even at three it. three even at three percent interest he may not see it you may still own money i know that was five hundred dollars in 97 i mean I oh yeah oh yeah that's that's eight or ten thousand dollars easy oh my goodness uh, <laughs> He didn't even apologize for it, Bill. I tell you. He, well, no, yes, he did. I, I ain't going to say that about my dad. He, he did. But, Dad, that's the last thing I'm going to say. You made a good point just now. Um, I Listening and respect. I do listen to my parents. One, parents have to set an example, Bill, for you to want to listen. 
Um, that's another thing I run into uh, now being 30, uh, 30 plus. And when I talk to a lot of my clients, a lot of them didn't, in some cases, they don't respect the parent, right? Um, or they didn't have a parent that did things that should be respected. So as an adult and getting exposed to say, hey, everybody didn't grow up like me. Everybody did not see what I saw. Some people saw a lot more things from their parents, not even from family members, just from their parents. And they just didn't get these lessons. They didn't have a grandfather like my father's, in my father's case, who could be a secondary option. Um, so they don't have that respect level. And I, I do, even though I do move to the beat of my own drum because of the way my parents raised me, um, that stuff's instilled in me. And I do hear everything they say. So we have a very healthy Calvin listens. Um, Calvin doesn't always do. Calvin always listens and then he makes the most respectable decision for Calvin, but it's with his own knowledge. I need to make sure that I know what I'm talking about if I'm doing something they told me not to do because you, you don't want to come off as disobedient. You want to be able to come back and say, this is why I didn't do it. And, you know, this is why. And then I've always been able to, you know, I, I do that because of the respect I have for both of them. So, um, yeah, I wanted to add that in there. It is great stuff. Calvin, go make some money so your mama could go to Paris and, um, where else are we going, Bill? Uh, London. Yeah, we're going to London and Paris. And Calvin, one of the things we're going to do, we're going to follow the transatlantic slave trade, how that was where um, London would send people, send ships to Africa, goods. And then from Africa, they would sell the goods and they would pick up um, enslaved Africans and they would take it to the New World and sell the slaves and then get raw goods like cotton and tobacco and all that, and take it back to London and England. So we're going to look at all that. We're going to look at a bunch of different things. And these are exposures we never had. Um, Calvin's been to Paris. I think he went to Paris on his honeymoon. So, Bill, you know, life is good. Life is good for the poor boy from the projects of Charleston, South Carolina. And God has blessed me. So, guys, love you both. Thank you so much for your friendship. And it's interesting when you can be friends with your children and respectful, that's a good thing. So Bill, Calvin, Odell, to listen to the audience, I know I got a little sappy, but that's my boy and I'm proud of him. Love you and we'll talk to you later. Okay, and folks, remember, don't play basketball with Odell. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Producer. Jeremy Powell, Creative Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PNL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.